All right, would you take the Word of God this evening and uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 25. Exodus and chapter 25. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 10. But if you remember, Exodus 25 introduces us to the tabernacle. Uh, it is called in verse 9, the tabernacle. It is also called in verse 8, a sanctuary. Uh, we mentioned that the chief purpose of the tabernacle is to understand, the chief purpose is to understand uh, the meaning and the message of the tabernacle. Uh, it is not its great proportions that we emphasize. It is not uh, the durability of the structure that we emphasize. It is not the grandeur or the architecture that we emphasize. We emphasize its message. As a matter of fact, in Christ, the tabernacle is done away with. There is no need for the tabernacle because the tabernacle was a shadow. So it's not the tabernacle itself that's important. And perhaps that's why God didn't make it a, for example, a permanent structure. He didn't make this a colossal building that was just a man would stand in awe. It was a tent. And so it's not the outside that we are impressed with, but it's the message that's contained within. And so we emphasize its message, and indeed its message far outweighs all human buildings and all human achievements. Uh, you think, I think the uh, pyramids are still considered, I think, one of the seven wonders of the world. I, I think that's correct. That's human achievement. We might look at the tabernacle and we say, ah, oh, the tabernacle is insignificant compared to those pyramids, but... Not at all. It stands uh, far greater than anything that man has done because this is the message of God. We remember that the tabernacle is called different names in the Old Testament. It is called the tabernacle of the congregation. It is called the tabernacle of witness. It is called the tabernacle of the Lord, the tabernacle of the house of God. But also it is called the tent of the testimony. Now keep this in mind, uh, that's in Numbers 9.15, this is called the tent of the testimony, and uh, keep this specific title in mind as we now come, we move from the tabernacle, by the way, we don't know anything about so far, uh, let's pretend we, this is progressive revelation, we know nothing so far about the service of the tabernacle, about anything that's contained inside the tabernacle, so far we don't know anything about it. But we know that here is the material for the tabernacle, and we don't know yet all the specifics involved. But before we go into any specifics, we are brought to the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. But it's not just the Ark. It is the Ark in the text with the mercy seat. Uh, the Ark as a wooden chest is accompanied by the cover or lid with a mercy seat. And these two form the whole, but they are addressed separately in our text. Uh, let me just point out to you before we begin, but in verse 10, he says, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Notice verse 17. And thou shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And I want you to notice, before we begin and look at the study, we know that part of the ark is the mercy seat. That's part of the ark, but it's the lid or the cover. But in this text, they are addressed as two separate things that make up the whole. And so uh, we're going to look, that's going to be the outline tonight. We're going to first look in the passage at the ark, then the mercy seat, and then the ark with the mercy seat put together. And that's how it's revealed and unfolds to us in the text. Now, what makes the ark distinct from all of the other articles or pieces of furniture in the tabernacle? Because there's not a whole lot in the tabernacle, and we're going to get into that, but uh, out of everything that is found within the tabernacle, the first article mentioned is the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat. And let me give you some preliminary reasons why this is given first. Uh, first of all, the tabernacle was made, 
The tabernacle was made for the ark, not the ark for the tabernacle. Now that's important because remember, it's not the outside of the tabernacle that we're supposed to be impressed with. It is what is inside the tabernacle. And the chief piece of furniture, if I could call it this, or the article, the chief piece of article in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that the glory of the tabernacle is not found in its outward appearance, but rather it is to be found in who resides within. God is, in his presence, is on the Ark of the Covenant, but if you notice, there is no statue or depiction of him. The two, we're going to see here, the two cherubims, they cover the glory of God. You have the mercy seat, but if you look at a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, there's nothing there. There is no representation of God, because God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Remember, God had just told them in chapter 20, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That is, involves God. Don't make an image of God. And so the Ark of a Covenant is not a statue of God, but it's there to represent the presence of God, although the, His presence is not depicted in any way. And so the tabernacle was made for the Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's mentioned first. Uh, secondly, the Ark is the first article mentioned to inhabit the tabernacle. Since it is first in order, we might say that it is first in importance. It is fitting that the ark stands as the first article mentioned before anything else is considered with regards to the furniture and to all the other pieces. The third thing we note about the ark is that all of these articles in the tabernacle are all subordinate to the ark. In other words, if you go through later, as we go through the service of the priest, he begins at the altar, but he always ends at the Ark of the Covenant. Everything that is in the service of the tabernacle points us and brings us to the Ark and nothing else. Nothing else in uh, the tabernacle itself is emphasized but the ark itself, and all of the service brings us face-to-face -to, -face to the ark. Specific details concerning the ark is given before the sanctuary itself, before the rituals that were to be performed, before any other piece of furniture is mentioned. Without the ark, without the ark, the whole service of the tabernacle becomes meaningless and empty. Indeed, it is interesting to note at a later time when Solomon builds the temple that every item is replaced except the Ark of the Covenant. Every article that is mentioned, by the way, in conformity to what God had said, but they made new ones, but they did not make a new Ark of the Covenant. There's only one. All of the other articles of the tabernacle were replaced, but this one, the ark. The ark has a number of names throughout the Old Testament. It is called the Ark of the Covenant. It is called the Ark of the Lord. It is called the Ark of God. It is called the Ark of the Lord God. It is called the Holy Ark, and it is called the Ark of thy strength, speaking of God, in Psalm 132, verse 8. But there's another thing that the ark is called, and we're going to read it here in our text. It is called the ark of the testimony. Now, it's interesting. Remember that one of the names for the tabernacle is the tabernacle of testimony. Another name for the ark of the covenant is the ark of the testimony, and we find that right here in our text. So, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Exodus chapter 25. Notice we're going to begin reading in verse 10. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood 
Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And, so here we have the ark, the, we could say the base, this cube, and verse 17, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. That's the cover for the Ark of the Covenant. But it's considered here a separate item to be made separately. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, matching the dimensions of the Ark. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there, there, I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. Of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 22. He says that this is the place where God will commune with them, with Moses, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim. So you notice specifically where God communes. Above the mercy, that would be the base, the cover that covers the ark. He would be above the, that seat. And he would be between the two cherubims facing each other with their wings stretching above the mercy. So there in the middle, there's nothing there. But that's where God is going to commune with his people. And all things which I give thee in commandment to the children of Israel, notice, upon the ark of the testimony. So I'd like to preach this evening on the ark of the testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And Lord, as we consider the tabernacle, specifically this evening, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, I pray that you would help us to see how this speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And I pray that you would um, help us to get a glimpse of your glory, to see that uh, the tabernacle is not to be celebrated for its outward appearance, but it is to be celebrated for its inward work that is displayed namely the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So Lord, help us once again this evening to stand in awe of who you are and to see how unworthy we are that you would do such a work for us. And help us, Lord, to leave this place tonight with grateful hearts for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we see it in our text, there are really three points that I'm going to uh, talk about, and they're rather simple. We're going to take it with the text. We're going to look at the ark first, which is what he tells them to build first, verse 10. Then we're going to move towards the mercy seat, which is built second. Notice it's built separately, verse 17. But then we come to verse 21, and we see that those two come together, forming a whole. It is one piece, uh, but there are two things, two aspects to uh, the ark that we are to consider. So we're going to see the ark, the mercy seat, and finally the ark with the mercy seat. As we look at the ark here, we notice uh, off the bat some uh, items that are listed as far as the material that 
is going to make up the ark. The ark was, um, the dimensions was just over four feet in length. It was about uh, two feet and a half, uh, two and a half feet broad and high. Uh, there are two main materials used to make up the ark are the wood and the gold. And immediately we come to the idea here that this ark is made of wood and gold. And we might stop right there and say, well, why is the wood necessary? In other words, the wood does not strengthen the gold. It does not make gold stronger. But there's something about this wood that uh, has to be representative for us as to uh, the, the, the nature of Jesus Christ. If you think about the ark itself and what it is, again, Christ is, and we're going to see this in the book of Exodus, but really the two materials here point us to the two natures of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ is called, as we come to the New Testament, He is called the Son of Man. But He is also called the Son of God. Often when we think about the titles of Jesus Christ, we might say, well, those are, uh, they, they don't go together, they don't seem to fit together, that He would be on the one hand the Son of Man and the Son of God. And, and what we learn about Jesus Christ is that He is... Uh, 100% uh, man when he was incarnate, and yet 100% God. We believe that Jesus, and we affirm this, he is God in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, certainly, we think of the gold that might uh, emphasize this, the, the deity and uh, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, for the sake of this message here, I uh, want to spend some time talking about the wood, and this is not just wood. He is referring to a specific type of wood, and that is the shittim wood. The shittim tree, it's interestingly, is the only tree that grows to any significance, to any significant size in the desert that Israel was passing through. Often in the desert you have uh, small bushes and uh, different uh, type of, uh, uh, if you would, uh, uh, trees or vegetation that can survive in a dry climate. The greatest of these is the shittim tree. It grows in a desert place. It is also a tree, interestingly, that does well in dry soil. Interestingly enough, Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us that Jesus Christ is as a root out of dry ground. We also know that the Shittim tree also produces sharp thorns. And finally, another thing about the tree that is interesting is that the gum of the tree was commonly used for medicinal purposes. Now, without going into too much detail or me trying to glorify this tree, I, I do think that there is a purpose here in adding this specific wood to the Ark of the Covenant that's going to be overlaid with gold. In other words, what we're going to know about the Ark of the Covenant, if we were to look on the outside, no one would see the wood. Uh, even the staves, the uh, if you would, the bars are also shittim wood, but overlaid with gold. If you look at the Ark of the Covenant, you could not see the wood in any way. Uh, what is emphasized is not the wood, and so we see nothing about the wood, but yet God says you're going to make it first of wood, and then you're going to overlay the wood, the, the wood with gold. The tree that is used is a tree that thrives in dry places, is a tree that produces thorns. Also, it is a tree that has medicinal purposes, and that is a good picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came up out as a root of a dry ground, uh, they would say of him, there is uh, no form of comeliness. There's nothing to be desired. It seems that he comes and he is insignificant. And yet for the, the thorns that the tree produces, those same type of thorns would be laid upon the brow of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to speak of suffering the thorn that pierces the skin and causes the blood to come down. And yet the same tree that has thorns 
also brings about healing. And that's who Jesus Christ is. In his humanity, he came to die for us. As God, he could not die. But in his humanity, when he became a man, he could die. But we don't just emphasize his humanity. He is God and all of God. And that's why he is overlaid with gold. We never want to emphasize the humanity of, of Christ so much and too much that we neglect his deity. What we know about God is not that he is a man. It is that he is God who became a man. You see, all how we think about the Lord is his glory and his majesty and his holy nature and his righteousness and everything that he is. But yet he became a man without ceasing to be God. With the ark, you cannot see the wood, you only see the gold. Lest we should be betrayed by the humanity of Christ, we must never neglect that he is complete deity. The New Testament says that in him all the fullness of God dwelleth bodily. He was fully God. And by the way, this tells us about uh, what uh, 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 refers to as the, the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Here's the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh. Man, talk about this morning, we're talking about the wisdom of God. <laughs> uh, that man cannot come up, uh, man could not come up with this. This is God revealing himself to man. That's this the great mystery of God. As God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on them in the world, and received up into glory. And as we look at the materials in Exodus chapter 20, we see that the ark is going to be made of shittim wood, this specific wood, and it's going to be overlaid with gold, with pure gold within and without. Notice, even if you would look inside the ark of the covenant, you would not see the wood. It would also be overlaid with gold. Verse 12 says, And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side. And the rings would be there for, as we see, the staves are going to pass through so that the priest can carry the ark. Uh, there would be four corners. And in the four corners, the priest would stand. And whenever the ark was moved, and we're going to see that later, they had to move it in a specific way, uh, but those staves are come through there, and that's how the ark is to be carried. But we also see something specific about the ark. Before we get to the mercy seat, uh, notice with me in verse 16, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. This is the last thing we know about the ark, that God says to Moses, you're going, you're going to place within that the testimony that I Give thee. Now, I do want to pause here, and because we have the fullness of God's revelation, we know all that was contained within the Ark of the Covenant. And so, if you hold your place here and um, uh, turn with me, we're going to see that a little later, but turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. In Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 9. Here we speak, he speaks a lot about. Uh, uh, the sacrifices and the service of the, the priest and the tabernacle. But in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, notice in verse 4, we learn about the contents of the ark. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 4, he speaks in verse 3 of the second veil. So we step into the holiest of all. What is into the holy of holies? Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. Wherein was, here is the three items contained inside, the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now the tables of the covenant is what referred to in Exodus chapter 25 as the ark of the testimony that God is going to give Moses that he is going to place therein. But in Hebrews chapter 9 we see two other items that were placed within that, by the way, that was announced before we get there, so the assumption is we already know what God said in Exodus 16. 
uh, to put the manna before the testimony of the Lord. So this is going to be, the manna is going to be included. And later in the book of Numbers, Aaron's rod that budded in Numbers chapter 17. We'll see that in just a moment. We see here that there's contents within the ark mentioned there. Now, I'm going to come back to it. So I know you're interested in what, what those things are, but we're going to come back to it at the end. But the second thing that is built here, if you notice in verse 17, we have verse 10 through verse 16, the ark. Beginning in verse 17, we have the mercy seat. If you notice, thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. I want to pause here and remind us that uh, the, the, in the New Testament, we find this word used twice. The uh, idea of a mercy seat is found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, but also um, the truth of the mercy seat is found in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Another word that uh, is equivalent to mercy seat is propitiation. Okay? Uh, propitiation means mercy seat. Uh, the idea here is, again, of propitiation is to appease, to placate, to make a satisfaction. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we have a good definition of the mercy. He says, whom God, Christ, whom God hath, Christ, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You see, if you would enter into the tabernacle, uh, you would find a table, the table of shewbread. But interestingly enough, throughout the tabernacle, you would find no seats, nowhere to sit down. There is actually only one seat in all of the tabernacle, and that is the mercy seat. You see, the seat is reserved for the Lord himself. Although he's not represented there, I, I, I grant that to you. We don't see a, a chair or a throne there. God's not represented in, in any way, but it is a mercy seat. Uh, you see, the seat is reserved for the Lord himself. The mercy seat was God's throne on earth. Now, why were there no other seats in the tabernacle? Well, the answer is very clear. is because the service of the priest never stopped. They had to make offering continually. They would go in and out and in and out and in and out. There's only one place where there's a seat, and that's the throne of the Lord on the Ark of the Covenant. We see in this place, by the way, in uh, verse 20 and 20, 21 and 22, notice in Exodus 25, he says in verse 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the Ark, and in the Ark... Thou shalt put the testimony that I give thee, and there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. As we mentioned here, the mercy seat here would re represent the presence of God, how God is in the midst of his people. Now, if you hold your place here, let, let's look uh, later down the road uh, during uh, the, the reign of, uh, of Saul and, and David. See if we can find some indications as to um, what the people thought about the Ark of the Covenant. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. In uh, 1 Samuel and uh, chapter 4, notice with me in verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may serve us out of the hand of our enemies. Save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, notice, which dwelleth between the cherubims, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So we see here that they refer here to the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubim. So notice the, the idea is the, the, the perception was here is the place where God dwells. 
Uh, same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 6. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, <clears throat> notice verse 1 and 2. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him uh, from Bali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, that dwelleth between the cherubims. So God here again, dwelling between the cherubims. You find that in 2 Kings 19, in Psalm 80, and Psalm 99. So, so here's the question we ask ourselves immediately. How could a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Well, the answer is rather clear on the basis of an acceptable sacrifice. You see, the mercy seat, as we know, and we'll look at the service, the mercy seat itself, the high priest once a year, after he would offer uh, a sacrifice for the sin of the people once a year, he would uh, take the blood that he had in the cup. Before he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would, uh, he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on his vesture. And if he didn't sprinkle the blood, he would be killed the moment he stepped into the Holy of Holies. And then he would come around before the Ark of the, of the Covenant, and there on the mercy seat, the place where God dwells, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The children of Israel are going to learn that this is going to be done year after year after year, and they would be reminded time and time again that the only reason why God dwells in the midst of His people is because there has been an acceptable sacrifice. The mercy seat was sprinkled with blood. We'll uh, see that in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 14. But we learn something here about the mercy seat. Uh, there are two cherubims. In verse 19 of Exodus 25, it says, And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall they make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. So David, come here, and then Tim, you come here. All right? Let's pretend for just a moment that David and Tim are the cherubims. Uh, now, by the way... Uh, when we read, uh, we're going to talk, study angelology uh, in Bible doctrine in Sunday school. Um, uh, angels don't have wings. <coughs> Cherubims do, though. Okay, I know the depictions often as angels has wings. Uh, probably that idea comes from the cherubims. Okay, that's a specific uh, class of angels. Not all angels are like the cherubims, but but those angels, those cherubims. Uh, are given, they have wings, the Bible says. And so the way they're laid out, and so if you think about the mercy seat, it's, it's a flat surface. Uh, it's made of shittim wood. It's overlaid with gold. And uh, uh, put your arms up. Let's pretend their arms are wings, and then bring your arms together. All right. So on this flat surface, okay, God is going to commune with his people above the mercy seat, but notice between the cherubims. So if you look at the Ark of the Covenant, there's nothing there. It's an empty space. This is the place where the blood is going to be sprinkled. This is the place where God dwells between the cherubims. And so there's going to be one cherub here on the one side, the other cherub on the, on the other side, and they're both facing the same direction, and their wings are meeting in the middle. And that's the description that he gives. All right, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. So now you have a, a maybe a, a visual. Uh, so there's two cherubims. The Bible mentions cherubims uh, pretty rarely, but when it does, it gives us a little indication uh, as, as far as God is concerned. For example, the first time a cherubim is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. You remember when Adam and Eve, uh, uh, they sinned against God, rebelled against God, uh, God drove them out uh, the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, cherubims. And their faces shall look one to another towards the, uh, or uh, that's not in Genesis, sorry, that, that, that was Exodus, uh, but uh, the, the, in Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so we learn first about the cherubims in Genesis chapter 3. And what do we learn here is that when, when cherubims are present, it represents God's authority. Get out of the garden. You, cannot, you can no longer dwell there. 
And who is going to guard the garden are cherubims. There's another scene that we find, and we have to we can reconcile Revelation chapter 4 with Ezekiel chapter 1. It's the same thing when we see uh, uh, the beast uh, and they're surrounding the throne of God in heaven. Uh, Ezekiel 1 tells us they're, they're the cherubims with wings, and Revelation chapter 4 uh, calls them uh, the, uh, the, the beast, but notice they uh, say, declare God's holiness. That's what they do. So if we just think about the cherubims generally, they represent the authority of God. They represent the glory of God. They are there to command us to the holiness of God. They're not there to speak of themselves. In other words, we're not attracted to the cherubims. The cherubims are not standing, desiring worship in a gold statue. The idea is the cherubims are not facing the priest who comes in to the Holy of Holies. The wings go up, their faces down, you cannot see their face. Their wings go down, and they look in this space where you see nothing, where there's no depiction of God, but they show us here that representative of the authority and the holiness of God, uh, they don't take any glory from Him. They cover the glory of God. Uh, they tell us, this is who God is. They're not here to receive worship. They're not there to look beautiful. They're there to say, here is the presence of the holy God, a God that dwells in the midst of His people with an acceptable sacrifice. In verse 20, we read that the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. You see, the cherubims, again, are facing each other. They are facing a common object, although there is no object present. Their heads bowed in adoration, and as the Bible pattern would have it, two witnesses testifying of God and who He is and His holiness and His authority and His righteousness. And we see here God, as verse 21, uh, 22 tells us, communing with man above the mercy seat between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. So you have the ark and now you have the mercy seat and now those two come together in verse 21 and 22 of Exodus. If you notice verse 21, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark upon the ark, and in the ark shalt thou put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now I want to go back and reference. You remember Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible spoke of uh, spoke of three items that are inside the ark. There is the uh, golden pot that had the manna. There is Aaron's rod that budded and there is the tables of the covenant. Now, let's spend some time talking about the manna. If you go back with me to Exodus chapter 16, you remember God gave the people manna, by the way, after they murmured. Not because they were saying, God, you're so great, we know that you're going to provide for us. They were murmuring and God gave them manna. And in Exodus chapter 16, notice verse 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So we read then that God gives them manna. Notice verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them that which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. And so what we read here is that as I, I preach through it again, so I'm not going to re-preach the message, but uh, this represents God's provision in Christ. You get to John chapter 6, and what does Jesus say? I am the manna that came from heaven. And so the manna that is inside the ark is, represents God's provision specifically in Christ. Now, they don't know this yet here. 
But they're going to know it when Jesus announces it in John chapter 6. So we have the manna. Then we have Aaron's rod that budded. Now, certainly, uh, maybe uh, if you uh, read about the tabernacle, maybe the last thing that you would think about is Aaron's rod that budded, because, well, what is that? Well, uh, for that, we have to go to Numbers chapter 16 and 17. So turn there quickly, Numbers chapter 16 and 17. <clears throat> Remember, there was some uh, opposition uh, against uh, the leadership among the children of Israel. You remember there was the rebellion of Korah. And Numbers chapter 16 details the revolt against Moses by Korah. And God's going to respond to this rebellion. So I'm not going to spend the time to detail the rebellion, but I want to see what did happen after uh, the rebellion. Remember that in chapter 17, let's begin in verse, uh, we'll, we'll uh, work our way down to verse 10. But he says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Numbers 17, verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers, and of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods. Write thou every man's name upon his rod. And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi. For one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers, and thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony. What's the testimony? That's the ark. That's the ark. Where I will meet with you. Right? Remember, the ark is where God meets with them. Verse 5, And it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece, for each prince one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 10, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony. There it is. That's back before the Ark of the Covenant. To be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. Now I want you to see here what's happening. In number seven, and we see that the rods, a rod, they were all lifeless things. But during the interval period, that one day that they were laid before the testimony, unseen by the eyes of man, the mighty power of God intervened. And a miracle was wrought, and the dead rod of Aaron was quickened, was brought to life. In a sense, there was a resurrection life and a fruit that appeared out of Aaron's rod. But I want you to notice what happens to those rebels, to Korah that says, we're not going to have authority over us. Uh, Aaron is not going to be God's representatives. And we might say here, this is going to be the place of judgment. And it's not. Do you notice verse 10? And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept before for a token against the rebels. And the rebels ought to die. No. Do you notice? And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. You know what Aaron's rod represents? Forgiveness. Grace. Those who were rebels, who thought, we want to be an authority, God says, no. Aaron, who is the priest, the high priest, 
who is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is the authority. And I'm going to show you why he is the authority because it will be his rod. There's going to be something that's going to signify that Aaron is the only true representative of God, that he is a picture of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that by resurrection life. In Romans chapter 1, if you turn there, you remember how uh, we know that Jesus is indeed declared to be the Son of God? In Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separate unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, by the resurrection power, by the resurrection from the dead. So understand that Aaron's rod, it's not about Aaron, it's not about the rod. It's about resurrection life that comes, that comes and stands before the ark of the testimony so that the people might not die. It's a message of grace and forgiveness and restoration to a rebel people. So we find the manna, God's provision in Christ, Aaron's rod that budded, God's grace in Christ through the resurrection, and finally there is the table of the covenant. Now we'll read later in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that uh, that's when, remember the first tables that uh, uh, when Moses comes down, he's going to see the idolatry and he's going to throw and those tables are going to break. And so God says the next tables that he's going to make, then those are going to be placed into the ark of the covenant. There's something interesting that we might say here that um, those commandments the first time they were given, we saw immediately that man was incapable of observing them. And so the tables of stone were shattered, showing that man was unable to keep the law. But the next set of tables of stones are put into the ark, the ark representing Jesus Christ, who came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law in every respect. And so he did. The first tables of stone show us how we cannot keep the law. The second tables of stone shows us how Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. That's why they are placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Remember what he said? I do always those things that please the Father. Not just the ark and the mercy seat, but everything inside the ark points us to Jesus Christ. Everything. We're going to see, by the way, I mean, you know the accounts, if you've been in church in any amount of time, all of the accounts in the Old Testament that surround the ark of the covenant. The time when it was stolen by the Philistines. The time when men picked up the ark unworthily and they were smitten and they died. So many things surround the ark of the covenant. And I want to just leave you with this as we think about the ark. Remember that the glory of the ark is not what is uh, the majesty of what we see on the outside. Remember that the ark was not made for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made for the ark. And we don't stand here impressed by how glorious the tabernacle looks to the eye, but by the message it communicates within. And the chief message it communicates is Jesus Christ in every respect. It's going to be the place, as we see, and we'll be done here. Notice, as the scripture says, verse 22, And there, at the ark, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. The tabernacle is called the tabernacle of testimony. 
The ark itself is called the ark of the testimony. And so we have to understand here that the main thrust of what God is showing his people and what he is showing us to here is that this is about God testifying to his people. So we have to hear the testimony. We have to listen to this testimony that God wants to communicate to his people. Everything that's going to surround the practice, uh, the service of the priest, all of the, the table of shewbread and the, uh, the incense, all of that is going to show us and point us to Jesus Christ. And so let's focus. Uh, here's a, the, the book of Exodus, the last part of the book of Exodus, is it's going to be the preaching of the gospel. That's what it is. It's all going to point us to Christ, point us to the cross, point us to forgiveness, point us to propitiation, point us to all the things that God wants to testify to man. And God does so by giving us pictures and rituals. And what we're going to learn is that it's not, there's no glory in rituals themselves, but it's in the message that the rituals communicate. The message that the table of shewbread communicates. The message that the Ark of the Covenant communicates. The message that the mercy communicates. The message of the brazen altar. The message of the laver. All of those things, there's a message in it. I was speaking of my wife on those things. She's in the nursery tonight, so I gave her a little idea into the message. And she says, how come the Jews can't see this? How can they read those things and not see that? And the truth is, all that we need to do is to proclaim the gospel. It's all found in the tabernacle. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Okay? These pictures, these rituals, these items are there to aid our understanding to elevate for us the glory of salvation, the glory of the work of God, that we might be more appreciative, that we might have a greater understanding of what the Lord did for us and how we will understand that we are completely unworthy. You and I, we are completely unworthy to be the recipients all, all this God does, I know it's for his glory. It is for his glory, but it's for man. He did it for us. And he's communicating in explicit ways all that he went through so that we might be a redeemed people. So praise his name for that.